Why don't you stand with me this morning? Let's pray together this morning. Come on, let's lift our voice together. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence in this place. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for your presence and your anointing. We're changed in your presence, Lord. Transformed in your presence. Hallelujah. You're changing us from glory to glory. From one degree of glory to the next. Transforming lives. Changing lives. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Lord, to speak to us. To change us this morning. Change our lives. Open our ears. Open our understanding, Lord, today. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Hallelujah. Why don't you turn to somebody next to you and say, he's changing you. You can be seated this morning. Come on. Give Jesus praise this morning. He's here. We worship him. Hallelujah. He's changing me. He's changing you. Amen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Matthew chapter 3. We've started a, a new series called Wholeness. And if you haven't, uh, if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen online. You can go on our website or Facebook. There's a lot of chatter on our Facebook page. Uh, there's a lot of uh, free, free resources and things happening on our Facebook page around this series. You can also sign up for emails that are related just to this series. We have our general kind of email distribution group where you get all the news, but then we have an email group just for this series. So you can get weekly updates, links to the videos, the podcast, um, schedule with one of our pastoral team for follow-up on the message that you've heard, all the things. So make sure you uh, participate in that. If you want to sign up, you can find that on social, uh, in our emails, and all the things. But uh, how many of you were blessed? God ministered to you, spoke to you last week. You were here with us last week, or you listened to the message. How many of God spoke to you? Or Amen. No, five of you. That's great. Praise the Lord. <laughs> how many of you God spoke to you? Let me hear you. I can't see you, so i got to hear you. The stage lights are right in my face. They're, they're intended to be in my face, but I can't see you. Past the second row, it's black. So if you're out there this morning, I'm glad you're here, but I can't see you. So uh, glad that you're here this morning, though. But, amen. I, I heard that. We're here. Amen. So this morning, we're going to jump in on our identity in Christ. We're going to continue the wholeness series. Last week was about being complete in Christ and maybe some of the symptoms or signs that you might not be complete. I promise that's probably the heaviest hitting message out of all of them. So if you got really offended at me last week, I do not apologize. But the rest of the messages won't be quite so in your face or you might get your toes stepped on, but it not quite so severe. Okay, you won't end up in the ER like maybe last week. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I, I know it challenged me. I know this series is challenging me, and God's using it to expand and do a work in my life. I'm sure he's doing the same for you. But in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, out of the Passion Translation, this is our verse for the series. For he is the complete 
fullness of deity living in human form. They're talking about Jesus and our own completeness. I love this. Our own completeness is now found in him. We are completely filled with God as Christ's fullness overflows within us. He is the completeness of God expressed in a human form. Jesus is the completeness of God. And you and I are receiving of His fullness. John said, of His fullness we've received grace for grace. And so this idea of complete completeness is uh, not that you and I are perfect. Tell the person next to you, you're not perfect. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we're perfect. All of a sudden, when you receive Christ, that everything is perfect. You're perfect. All the issues are gone. All the sins gone. Everything. If you're married, you know better. Right? So you know that, that we're not automatically perfect once you, once you accept Christ. But the idea of complete, completeness here, or wholeness in Christ, is that layer upon layer. It's like putting the sand in, in, the, in a, in a uh, container, and you shake up the sand as it falls through the rocks, and you put in more sand, and you shake the container, and the sand falls in through the, the crevices of the rocks and you shake it some more and you keep filling up and filling up the container until it's overflowing. That's the idea of completeness here is that we are being shaken every, you know, by life we're being shaken, by our, our spiritual journeys we're being shaken, in our faith life is happening and God is pressed down, shaken together, running over, do you hear me this morning? Right, So he's shaken together all the things in our life to make room for more of him. Part of that journey, the thing, the shaking, is that we've got to deal with our spiritual growth. We have to deal with our emotional growth and who we are in him. And so today we're going to take a look at our identity in Christ. Jesus' temptations in the wilderness give us an outline of three false identities or masks that the devil offers to each one of us. They show the choices that we have to make to remain faithful to God, to our God-given unique life and identity. Before the temptation of Jesus, we find him at his water baptism. We see this snapshot of wholeness or the identity of who he is in his father at his water baptism. We're going to take a look at that. He had yet to perform any miracles, to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. He hadn't done anything to earn or achieve his father's love at his water baptism. He receives a very experiential affirmation that he is loved by his father just for who he is. Living and swimming in the river of God's deep love for us in Christ is at the very heart of of true spirituality. Soaking in this love enables us to surrender to God's will, especially when it seems so contrary to what we can see, feel, or figure out in ourselves. Only the love of God, I want you to hear this, only the love of God in Christ is capable of bearing the weight of our true identity. Where do you find your identity? Where do you find who you are? It's in Christ. It's in the love of God. This is what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says about this love. I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation. It says, For by grace you have been saved by faith. Nothing you did could ever earn this salvation. For it was the love gift from God that brought us to Christ. 
So no one will ever be able to boast, for salvation is never a reward for good works for human striving. We have become his poetry, a recreated people that will fulfill the destiny he has given each of us. For we are joined to Jesus, the anointed one, even before we were born, God planned in advance our destiny and the good works we would do to fulfill it. You are God's, the word there for poetry is God's masterpiece. That the love of God has created in for you this wonderful design, this wonderful destiny. And it can't be fulfilled outside of Christ. You know, the world strives and tries to find their identity and all the things. But truly, only our identity and our destiny can be realized in Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to verse 13. I'm going to read from the Passion because I love how the Passion puts this baptismal experience of the Father's love with Jesus. It says in verse 13, Then Jesus left Galilee to come to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But when he waded into the water, John resisted him, saying, Why are you doing this? I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me to be baptized. And Jesus replied, It is only right to do all that God requires. Then John baptized Jesus. And as Jesus rose up out of the water, the heavenly realm opened up over him, and he saw the Holy Spirit descend out of the heavens and rest upon him in the form of a dove. Then suddenly the voice of the Father shouted from the sky, saying, This is my Son, the Beloved. My greatest delight is in him. Jesus was 30 years of age, and he's come out to be baptized in the river Jordan by John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been out baptized. This was an entirely different uh, experience. This was entirely different than what any of the religious people had experienced. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the religious had gathered around. The crowds had come to just kind of spectate and judge what John the Baptist was doing. And here comes Jesus out to the water. And as he gets out into the water, you can read through the Gospels that John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus goes out into the water to be baptized. And John's response to Jesus was, you need to be baptizing me. There was a recognition that Jesus was the Son of God. So as he's, you know, think about the impact of this, is that before the Father ever speaks, everyone has a recognition, whether they understand it fully or not, this is, this Jesus, the man walking out into the water, is the Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world humbled himself to be baptized by John the Baptist. 
I want you to think about that as it relates to our identity. We would, you know, if, if you have an identity crisis, the last thing that you want to do is humble yourself to be baptized by someone else, right? That would be just the opposite. You know, you want to be the man or the woman. You want to run the show or be the one in charge, you know, for whatever need or purpose it might be fulfilled. But Jesus recognized who he was. He was secure in who he was. And John the Baptist, even though he resists, Jesus said, we need to do this to fulfill all that the Father has required. Think about the humility of Jesus for a moment. The creator of the world in human form has come, human flesh. I want you to think about that for a second, that he has given up all of his authority, all of the glory and the splendor of heaven, everything that he knew, eternity, he stepped into creation for you and I. We say things like this, but we really have a hard time understanding what it means to lay aside all that Jesus was to step into creation for you and I. Have you ever thought about that? Just the condescension of Jesus, that, that you take the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who rules over all things, and he steps into human form for you and I. Talk about identity crisis. Talk about uncertainty of who you are and what, you know, all the things that could result from that. That you're the, you're the creator. God himself, the word made flesh. God himself stepped into creation for you and I. Philippians says, to think of yourselves the way that Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had an equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became a human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death, a crucifixion. He did that for you and for me. He humbled himself and was baptized. He came baptized in water. And, and then this experience happens, right? So he gets baptized in water. And that wasn't just the end of the story. That wasn't just the end of the experience. He goes up, he goes under the water. You know, that in itself, just the, just the baptism. How many of you have been baptized in water? Let me see your hand. Okay, if you haven't been baptized in water, we have water baptism next week. You should get water baptized. But how many of you remember when you got baptized in water, going under the water in itself is an experience. Just the recognition that I'm dying to that old way of living. The old, the old self is gone. The old things have been buried. And I'm coming up a new creation. How many of you remember that? And just the experience that, how y'all out there this morning, just the experience of that and the recognition of that, right? Just, the, just the, the water rushing over you and the cleansing and the washing of the water, just the tangible reality of God in that moment. Jesus had nothing to die to. He was a sinless man. He came and was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He did it in obedience. But there was absolutely nothing that he was burying in that water. It was a, it was a symbol of what you and I were to experience. In Christ, that old self was going to be buried. We were going to be buried 
with him. Just as he was buried in the water, just as he was buried in the tomb, we were going to be buried with him in like manner. What a, what a powerful testimony that Jesus himself would be buried in the water, would be immersed into the water, just like you and I was, or would be. And then he comes up out of the water. If that wasn't just enough of an experience, the heavens are open. What does that look like, that the heavens are opened? I mean, did, was there like a portal into the, you know, like, what, what does that look like? What, what happened when it says the heavens were open? Was it a cloudy day, and then it was an unclouded day? That was an old hymn reference. Was it, was it like, what was, what was that like, that all of a sudden the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is not a dove. He came in the form of a dove. And he comes and he, he lands on Jesus. He sits on I don't know. Did he sit on his head, his shoulder? I don't know. You know, I don't know what that looked like. But he came. I wasn't there. But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove. There's one other time in Scripture where we see this. If you rewind back to Genesis, you remember the time where Noah, after the flood, sent the dove out to see if the flood waters had receded. It was a sign of a season change that the old order had changed. The order of the flood, the order of destruction had changed and seasons had changed. And now again, when Jesus has been baptized, it was announced there's a season change happening. The old order of destruction, the old order of religious uh, tr attempts and efforts to get together, everything is changing now. This man, the one that you've just watched baptized, he's the man that's been anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure. He's the one that's going to go about doing good and healing all those who are oppressed. He's the one that's going to deliver people from their devils. He's the one that's going to save the the world from their sins. He's the one that's going to back. There's a season change. And it was subtle. I mean, the, the dove, I mean, that's just a subtle sign, a dove flying in. It's, it wasn't fire like on the day of Pentecost or a cloud of fire, a cloud of smoke, like in the, the Israelites leaving Egypt. It was a dove that came and peacefully settled in on Jesus. And demonstrated the life that he was going to live. This man, even though he was the king of kings and the ruler of all things, he was going to come and die a death for you and I. He wasn't coming as the conquering king. There is a day, though, he is coming back as the conquering king. So the Spirit descends on him, and this, this was a sign of things to come, of what was happening, but it also was marking who Jesus was, that his ministry would be a ministry of peace, that he was sealed by the Holy Spirit. You and I have the seal of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus had the seal of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the same work of the Holy Spirit in our life. So when you don't know who you are, or you question your identity, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit tells us who we are. 
that you and I are children of God. And by this spirit of adoption, by the Holy Spirit, the same seal, the same person, the seal Jesus seals you and I, marks our lives as his and tells us that we are children of God. We have the same spirit that Paul said in Romans that we're able to say, Abba, Father, or, or Daddy, God. We have this same spirit that says he is my Father, my identity is in Him. And then the voice from heaven, God's voice, the Father's voice from heaven. This, by the way, just wow, what a powerful display of our triune God. Let me just pause there and say that. What, a, what an amazing, I mean, what it must have been like to be in that moment, to see the Son being baptized, to see the Holy Spirit come as a dove, and to hear the voice of the Father. To hear, to, what a moment that was. What a moment that was. And we hear the voice of the Father saying, this is the Son of my love and whom I'm well pleased. This was an experiential moment for Jesus. He was marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit, confirming his identity. And he heard his father say, I love you. You are the son of my love, and I'm well pleased. You haven't done a thing. You haven't, you haven't gone to the cross. You haven't gone to Calvary. You haven't healed anybody. You haven't changed water to wine yet. You haven't done anything, but you are the son of my love. There's nothing that you can do to earn my love. And for you and I, you know, baptism takes us back to that same moment. It takes us to that moment to realize there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn his love. Just like we surrender to the water of baptism and they rush over us, even so we must surrender to the love of the Father like ocean waves and let them wash over us. We can't earn it, we can't achieve it, but we can yield to it and let Him love us. Let Him tell us about who we are in Him. Let Him wash away all the headaches and the pains and the torments and the issues. Come on now. Let Him wash them away. And you can hear his voice today. It may not be an audible voice, but you can look into the scripture and hear his voice plainly telling you how much he loves you. You can look into the life of Jesus and hear the Father saying how much He loves you. You can tune in to the voice of the Holy Spirit resident on the inside of you, and He's telling you how much He loves you. That's after all, the, the Romans 5.5 5 says that the, the love of the Father has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. That's how we know that we're loved. It's the Holy Spirit makes it tangible and real to us. It's not just a concept. Our identity in God is not a dogma or religion. It's not just an idea. But who we are in Him is made alive. It's made real in us by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think about this moment, Jesus' baptism and the expression of the Father's love. Fast forward three years when he finds himself at Calvary. What a difference! What a difference from the day of his baptism to the day of his crucifixion. Do you remember Jesus on the cross and one of his first proclamations or declarations as he's dying? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes from this moment at his baptism of absolute 
perfect expression of love where the father says, you are my beloved, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then three years later, he experiences the absolute rejection of his father. What a contrast. What a contrast. And we see in this the great havoc that sin causes. We see the separation that happens because of sin. Sin brings rejection and detachment and hurt and loneliness and fear and all of these things. The father looked away in that moment from his son was felt the forsakenness of his father, the detachment from his father. And many, many people today experience these same realities because of the impact of sin. Sin causes our relationships to be affected. Sin causes relationships and hurt and rejection and fears and offense. But in Christ, but in Christ, Christ came, was crucified, His body was broken so that your relationships could be mended. Christ's body was torn in two so where there was division and strife, there could be wholeness. In your life where you feel like things don't add up, you, don't feel, you feel like maybe mentally or emotionally things are, are, are in pieces, Jesus' body was broken and destroyed so that you could be made whole. That your identity could be intact. That who you are in Him could be made complete. You wouldn't have to feel the rejection. You wouldn't have to go through the separation. You wouldn't have to face those things alone. Jesus came so that your life could be restored. It seemed in Jesus' life that everyone had expectations for him. Everywhere he went, there was expectations for Jesus, how he was to live, how he was to teach, if he was to teach, how he was to heal, was he to spit on the ground or not, was he to lay hands on people or not. I mean, everywhere he went, expectations. But Jesus was secure in his Father's love and in himself and was able to withstand the pressure that was placed upon him. Life has pressure. There are stressors. There is anxiety. There are issues that are going to face you in life. And if you don't know who you are in Christ, you'll succumb to the weight of those things. But when you know who you are in Him, you can handle the weight in Him. He disappointed his family. At one point, his mother and his siblings thought that Jesus was out of his mind. In Mark 3, 21, it says when his family heard it, they went to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. His own family thought he was crazy. Matter of fact, James, if you, James, who wrote the, the epistle of James in the New Testament, James didn't even get born again, as we would say, until after the resurrection. He didn't accept that Jesus was the Son of God. He was his half-brother. Even his own family didn't receive who he was. He disappointed the people of Nazareth. If you remember Luke 4, 28 and 29, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill and they were going to throw him off the cliff. I'd say they were disappointed. He disappointed his closest friends, the 12 disciples. 
They projected onto Jesus their own picture of the kind of Messiah Jesus was supposed to be. Remember, he was supposed to be the conquering king, overthrowing the Roman rule. They quit and left him. Judas, which was one of his closest, who was responsible for the money and for the care of everyone in his ministry team, stabbed him in the back. Peter denied and cursed someone that he even knew who Jesus was and that he had been with Jesus. Thomas wasn't sure of who Jesus was or where he was going. I mean, we can go on and on and on. He disappointed the religious leaders. The religious people eventually said, oh, he's of the devil. His teachings are of the devil. Can you imagine? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, after Jesus' baptism... Immediately after his baptism, I love what this says. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Did you hear that? Jesus was led by who? Some of you caught that. Not everybody did. Who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit led Jesus. The word led there is to be driven. He was literally driven or led, directed by the Holy Spirit to go to a place of temptation. To you, that, to you and I, that sounds probably counterintuitive. Why would you do that? Why would the Holy Spirit bring you to a place of testing? Can I tell you today that not all testing is of the devil? It's quite funny that the, the Father will even use the devil for your benefit. You didn't hear me. The, God will, the Father will even use the enemy to bless you. You all mad because the devil's up in your business. Stop it. God's using him to bless you. You might think he's taking something from you, stealing something from you, harassing you. God's using it to your benefit. you got to see past the temporary. you got to see past what's happening in the moment and see the blessing that's coming on the other side of that. It might be a 40-day test. It might be a 40-day trial. But the Holy Spirit's working it out in your life. Something's happening. James tells us, consider it pure joy, brothers, when you're facing trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, everybody say testing of your faith. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do you notice a theme here that God wants you to be complete in him. So the testing of your faith is another avenue by which God makes you complete in Him. Here in Matthew chapter 4, I'm not going to take the time to read the whole chapter. I would encourage you to do that on your own though. But there are three false, I would say false identities or, or temptations that the enemy brings to Jesus to put on a false identity, a false mask, if you will. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3, as he says, if you are, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus said, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is a temptation here, a false identity around, I am what I do. 
I am what I do, or performance. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if that is who you are, then perform. Culture asks us the same question. What have you achieved? How have you demonstrated your usefulness? What have you done? And we're, uh, we're tempted, just as Jesus was here, we are tempted to determine our value by what we do and what we've accomplished. Whether it's family, school, church, relationships, career, wealth, whatever it is. But this false performance identities are based on, on these ideas that we have to perform in order to be valuable. We have to do something to be valuable. We do this a lot even uh, in our lives. We say things like, well, I'm Irish, so that makes me a hothead. I get angry because I'm Irish. Or I'm a certain ethnicity, so I act this way or I behave this way. Y'all got quiet on me this morning. We, we base our identity on how we perform and we use, we use ethnicities, diagnosis, you know, or I have, I have this disease or this issue, so this is how I behave. No, that's not your identity. That's not who you are. You're not a diagnosis. Don't shout me down when I'm telling you the truth. You're not a diagnosis. You say, well, they told me I'm, I'm clinically depressed. That, that is not who you are. That is something that God can heal. He is the healer. He has healed time and time again. He can heal you. He's willing. and That's not your identity. Your identity is not a disease. It's not a diagnosis. It's not an ethnicity. It's not, it's not a title you wear. You know, there's a great temptation in ministry to base, you know, in any, really, in any helping or serving role, you know, that you base your identity on who you help or how you serve others. It's a performance. You're the, you're the person behind the microphone, and, and that's your identity. Or you're the person that does, I'm the kid's teacher, and that becomes your identity. Or I'm the person that takes out the trash, and that becomes your identity. You are not what you do. If you are created in Christ, you are, you are who he's made you to be. You are his masterpiece, created to declare the glory of God. God. And amen. And the expression of that might be that you sing a song and, and you, you're worshiping and, and you sing. It might be an expression of taking out the trash or serving in kids ministry or whatever career path you're on. Those are all expressions of who you were made to be. You are a masterpiece. In Christ, you're a masterpiece. The, the idea here, this, you know, I get, I, you know, I, I love metaphor. I'm never really good at metaphors. I love metaphors. I have a hard time creating them. But this is one of those verses that I have a metaphor. I feel like, you know, every time I read this, I get the idea of a stained glass image. That you have this beautiful mosaic stained glass. That you have all these pieces of broken glass you know, and it's and, and God takes all these pieces of broken glass of our life and he starts gluing them into a wonderful masterpiece. We think we're a broken mess. Jesus sees a masterpiece. We think we're just an ash heap, but he sees the walls being rebuilt in your life. You feel like yeah, there's nothing's possible. You just got to perform, perform, perform. And Jesus is making something beautiful. 
He's just taking piece by piece. And then all, before you know it, you see this, this wonderful masterpiece, stained glass art in a window, and the light shines through it. And you're like, wow, that's your life. You're, a, you're the, the window that the light of the gospel, the light of God is radiating through. He takes those broken pieces of your life and radiates his life through that. You are his masterpiece, not what you do. Not what you do. You can take any piece of that. You know, career is just a piece. It's just one of those broken pieces of glass. Career is just a piece. Family's just a piece. You know, whatever title you wear, it's just a piece. Money, all the things, they're just pieces. But it's not the masterpiece. It's not the, it's not the big window. It's not the finished work. It's just all pieces of who you are. Who you are is that you're this beautiful masterpiece that the light of God is radiating through. Jesus, at 12 years of age, is, if you remember, rewind the clock, he's at the temple. And he's sitting there and he's hanging out with the teachers and he's listening. If you, remember, you might remember the story because his parents left him at the church. They leave. They go home. Jesus got left at the church. I, I, won't, I won't call anyone out, but I know that that's happened here before. Kids have been left at the church. I guess there's worse places you could leave your kids, but And the Bible says in Luke 2:47 that all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. You know, there could have been even from an early age, 12 years of age, if you would go back, there was an opportunity for Jesus to say, "Well, I have to perform Everybody expects me to be wise and understanding. I've got, I'm the son of God. I've got to have it all together. I have to perform. I have to have the right words. I, I mean, every time I go into the temple, I have to say the right things and do the right things and cross the T's and dot the I's and all the thing, right? Because that's what people expect. And here at 12 years of age, we see that temptation again or, or a foundation for where the enemy can use that experience of as a 12-year-old. You know, that's what he does in our lives. There's experiences that you've had as a kid, as an adolescent, things that have happened in your life, and that, those experiences are the very things that the enemy will manipulate and use against you. Well, you are this way because you had that experience. You have this identity because this happened, and he manipulates and uses those things against you. Does anybody hear me this morning? That, but that was not how Jesus chose to live. He didn't say to the devil, when the devil said, turn these stones into bread. Hey, well, you know, remember when I was 12 years of age, and I was, my parents left me at the temple, and everybody talked about how I did this, really, this teaching thing really well. So I guess I am the person that's supposed to be the teacher, and I guess I need to turn these stones. That's not what he said. What did he do? He came back with the truth. He said, I will live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What does the Father say about me? What does the Father say about you? That's the word I'm going to live by. That's what determines what I do. That determines where I go. That determines my identity. What does the Father say? Do you hear me this morning? In 1 Kings, we see another example of performance identity in 1 Kings 19. 
Elijah, you probably remember this story. Elijah was running from Jezebel. In just a couple earlier chapters, Elijah had met all the prophets of Baal on the mountaintop. I mean, they had a showdown. They had the showdown of showdowns. And Elijah calls fire down from heaven. And then they, they kill all the prophets of Baal. I mean, they chase them down. They, they go running. All the prophets go running after the prophets of Baal, the prophets of God, to go chase them down and bring them back to the altar and say, we're going to kill them. And Elijah kills them all. I mean, that is, I talk about, some, that's a serious day in church. You've, fire has fallen and consumed the altar and all of the false prophets have been murdered. I mean, it's, it's a bloody mess. It's, it's a day in the church. And word gets back to Jezebel about it. She's the, the antichrist figure here. And the word gets back to her and she sends word to Elijah and says, if not by the end of the day, I'm going to do the exact same thing to you, buddy. I'm coming after you. You just killed all of my prophets, and you've, you've made a mocker of me. I'm coming after you. And Elijah's response, remember, he just got done doing. He just got done performing. He just got done doing the things that his prophet office required to do. And what is his response? He takes off running. 1 Kings 19. He was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. You ever been there? Lord, I'm doing all these great things for you, but Jezebel's driving me crazy. I'm running. Ha ha. But he himself went a day's journey into wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. You know, this is funny. You know, I just get sweep. You know, this is... He sat down under the broom tree, the sweep, the sweeper tree. Anyway, y'all go home and get that later. To see the, never mind. And he asked, this is so important. He asked that he might die. Have you ever found yourself doing, doing, doing and get so exhausted, so burnt out? You say, Lord, I just want to quit it all. I'm done. Just let me die. And that's where Elijah found himself. He says, it's enough. Take away my life. I am no better than my father's. I'm done. I'm done. I've been doing. And his identity was wrapped up in what he had done, not who God was. It was wrapped up that he was the prophet. He was the man. He just killed, and he had exhausted. I mean, that was a traumatic experience, not to mention that. But, I mean, all of the things he was facing and dealing with, and now he's running for his life, and he sits down under the tree and said, Lord, I'm ready to die. Just do it. And God says, I find this very interesting, and the same is true for us. He says, I want you to go out on the mountain. Go out. Just go out there. In the cleft of the rock. I'm, all of the signs and the, the violent storm, all the things. God wasn't in him. Where was God? Where did God speak to him? You need to go read this story again. But where did God speak to Elijah? In the still, small voice. Sometimes we just need to settle down. We need to calm down. Stop the chaos. Stop the drama. Can I tell you? Stop the drama. 
Stop the chaos, stop the drama, and just listen to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit who's telling you that you are His, that you are Christ, that you are loved, that your identity is in Him, not in what you do. People who find their identity in what they do often have a high fear of failure. High perfectionism rate, you know, I got to be perfect, I got to perform, I have to live to this demand or this expectation. And oftentimes it's not even the expectation of others, but it's the expectation that they set on their own selves to perform at a certain standard. That's not who God's called you to be. Take the pressure off. Did you all hear me? Take the pressure off. Stop setting the expectation that you have to perform at such a high level. You'll never meet the standard. Can I tell you something? You'll never meet the standard. Because once you get close, you're going to move it. You're going to say, oh, well, I, I, did a, I did it an 8 today, but I know tomorrow I can do a 20. So I'm no longer at a 10. I'm now at a 20 because I can do better. Because you never see yourself as complete and whole in Christ. So you have to keep trying to achieve that. Take the pressure off. You're not known by, by God by what you do. You're known by His name. You're known by Him. And He's engraved you on the palm of His hand. He hasn't engraved. He didn't say in Isaiah, I've listed your works on my hand and I know what you do. It's always... No, no. He said, I have engraved your name on my hand. I know you. I know who you are. You're known by him, not by what you do. Number two. Well, that was number one. So let's go to number two. <laughs> In Matthew chapter four, if you want to go back there, if you were moving through scriptures with me. Verse 8 and 9, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you'll just fall down and worship. I'll give you all the things. In other words, an identity based on what I have or possessions. I'll give you all these things if you'll just bow and worship. Our culture measures success by what we own. Marketers now spend more than $15 billion each year seducing children and adolescents to believe that they have to have the certain toys, clothes, electronic devices, etc., and their identities depend on it. As adults, we measure ourselves through comparisons. Who has the most money, the beautiful body, the most comfortable life, our sense of worth, often tied into our positions at work or the amounts of money we receive at our jobs. Who has the best education? Who went to the best school? Did you hear me this morning? Materialistic. And it's not, this isn't a new thing. If you go back to David facing Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, David was facing Goliath. And he goes out and he says, you know, what's going on? What's happening? He's getting the story. And verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free, or it means to be tax-free. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Did you notice it was the enticement? If, if, you'll, if you'll perform, if you'll do, well, it's now materialist. We're going to give you things. Your identity is about the things. Your father's house will have a name and be tax-free. We'll enrich you. You'll even get the king's daughter. You'll get to marry the king's daughter. All about the things, the possessions. Materialism. The need for things. Always needing the next thing to feel a sense of worth or value, or you feel like you have to keep up with the Joneses, feel like you have to brag about the things that you always have, especially if you get something new, you got to tell everybody about it. Or peace comes from having to shop or buy something new or have the next new thing, and you feel inferior if anyone has something that you don't have. You use people to get ahead. Instead of enjoying relationships, the priority is on possession. So that is finding your identity and your possessions. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Here, you can have all these things. I'll give them to you. All you got to do is just worship me. What you worship is what you become. And if you worship your possessions, that's what you become. The identity is wrapped up in what you possess. As we were reflecting earlier, Jesus at 12 and how this temptation could circle back up for him. We see the same kind of thing happen here. When Jesus was two years of age, you, I'm sure you remember when he was two years of age, Mary and Joseph lived as refugees in Egypt till Jesus was about 12 years of age. For 10 years, he lived as a refugee in Egypt, had nothing. They left their home, had no family, no things, nothing, running for their safety. Jesus was a wanted man even at two years of age. Running for safety, not having the security of, uh, of his home, not having the security of his family around him, running. And the, the temptation here to have materialistic, uh, a materialistic identity could have come up for him again. Remember when you were a kid growing up? I mean, some of the most formative years of his life. Some of the most formative, the research science tells us that some of the most influential years of a child's life is, is that one to two years of age time frame. That they learn, children learn how to process stress and drama and all the things of life in those first two years of life. And Jesus' life at two years of age was turned literally upside down, running as a refugee for safety. And that temptation from the devil, I'll give you all these things. That, that insecurity from childhood could have risen up. Yeah, I didn't have anything growing up. We, I mean, we, we had to run. We lived in Egypt. We didn't even live in our home country. We had to run. We didn't have, I didn't have my family. I didn't have anyone that I knew. Could have come back up for him. And his identity rooted in that. Here's what Jesus' response was. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I'm not going to serve my possessions. I'm not going to serve my wealth. They're going to serve me. They become a tool. God has anointed me to create wealth. God has given me the abilities, and it will serve the kingdom. I will not serve it. 
that my possessions, the titles, the things that I have will serve the kingdom, but I will not serve them. Is that your perspective on the things that you have? Do you use them for kingdom purposes? Do you see the possessions that you have as a kingdom tool, or is it a status for you to have those things. Your identity is not based on what you own or the possessions that you have. Your identity is that you have been made His. You are the possession of God. Did you hear me? You've been adopted in. He has taken possession. He's taken ownership of you and your life. He said He's found you in the middle of depravity and despair, and He's made you His own. And then the third false identity that he's tempted with here in verse 6. We'll jump back in verse 6. He says, if you are the Son of God, just throw yourself down. He'll give your angel charge. You. Just throw yourself down. If you're the Son of God, <laughs> I am what others think about me. False identity of popularity. I am what others think. If you are the Son of God, we don't know who you are. Nobody's seen you minister yet. Nobody has seen you heal anyone yet. Nobody has, you haven't gone to the cross yet. We haven't seen you do any great ministry. If you really are the Son of God, then just throw yourself off. Prove it. Jesus was invisible at this point. No one knew him. And most of us place a higher premium on what other people think than what we realize. What will I say or not say in a conversation? What school will my child attend? Who will I date? What kind of career will I pursue? All of the things about popularity. True freedom comes when we no longer need to be somebody special in other people's eyes because we know we are lovable and good enough. This is, we see this same kind of Temptation play out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For you are still of the flesh, Paul's writing, for while there is a jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not behaving merely human? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There was this great debate happening. Who's greater, Paul or Apollos? Who should we follow, Paul or Apollos? Who's most popular? Who has the best identity? Who's, who's out there, right? Who do we, who's the man? That's who we, and, and Paul said, that's not what this is about. That's, that is a carnal way of living. It's not about who's most popular, or who has the best preaching ratings, or who's the best speaker, who's the best presenter, who's the best at this. That's not what this is about. I planted Apollo's water. God did the work in your life. Jesus, again, going back to his his childhood, we can see where there's a correlation between how Jesus was tempted by the devil and childhood experiences. For me, this comes up 
In John chapter 1, we see this echoed. It wasn't said at Jesus' childhood, but we see the, the perspective echoed when Jesus is calling his disciples. In John 1.46, Nathanael says to Philip, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe, maybe you weren't popular enough. You weren't the right fit. You didn't have the right lineage. You didn't have the right... Uh, you didn't grow up in the right town. Did you hear me? <laughs> I didn't have the right school. I wasn't... My identity wrapped up in the popularity. And Jesus, very just this temptation from the devil. Are you the son of God? What good can come from Nazareth? Are you really? I mean, could you really be that, that person? And we hear that echo, that lie. What good could ever come out of my life? I mean, I'm not, I'm not popular enough. I'm not good enough. I don't have the, the right things, whatever that is, the right titles. Or and even the disciples said it about Jesus. But that didn't deter his mission and who he was, his purpose, and his identity. It didn't change didn't change just because they didn't think something good could come out of Nazareth. Maybe you're here this morning and think, well, what good could come out of Akron? <laughs> I mean, can God really use me? Can God really, could God really do something in my life? I mean, what good could come out of Stowe, what good could come out of Akron? What good could come out of wherever you're from? Verse 7, Jesus said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. That was his response. Are you? And Jesus just very simply said, This is who I am. He didn't debate with him. He just says, you'll not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, remember, devil, when I saw you fall like lightning? Don't tempt me. Our response in those moments is not to argue or debate well, could anything good come from Akron? I'm his. Don't tempt the Lord your God. That's it. Why don't you stand with me this morning, Pastor Grace, y'all can come back. Being complete in Christ. You're being made complete in Christ. Lacking nothing. Jesus, I thank you this morning that we are found in you. Our identity is in you. Lord, I just pray that every person that hears this message, Lord, whether it's here in the building or online, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts, Lord. I believe that you already have, but continue, Lord, that you would continue to speak 
and direct their steps regarding their identity. Their identity is found in you. No one can change that. No one can take it away. No one can erase it. Even the lies of the enemy can't change that we're found in you. Lord, I pray that we would continue to speak. Lord, I thank you that you would even right now stir words of truth in people's hearts. That when they're tempted with these same false identities, they can speak just as you did. Secure in the Father's love. Secure in the Father's love. Speak truth. I thank you for it, Lord. I want to, two things I want to encourage you in. Because we all know, you know, this is, this is the greenhouse. You know, you're in the, God's greenhouse. And when you're in the greenhouse, it's real easy to amen and shout me down and whoo-hoo. Feels good. Because you're in the greenhouse. But when you walk out of the greenhouse, you're going to be reminded of all those little lies from the devil. How do you face them? One, you got to stay secure in the love of God. Jesus stayed secure in his Father's love. you got to stay secure. Two, speak truth. You don't have to argue with the devil. You don't have to argue with a lie. Just speak the truth out of your mouth so you can hear yourself say it. Say, I'm his. I'm secure in his love. I'm going to worship him only. I don't need to worship, possess, I don't need things. I'm worship. When, you're in this, when you're in the store, well, now it's not even in the store. You just go on your phone. You're sitting at home and you're stressed. What can I buy? What can I buy? I need, I need a thing. I need something. I don't, you don't need anything because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship God. You know what I dare you to do? Open up ccacron.org slash give. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, this isn't a way to get money. I'm just telling you, this is real. Because the devil wants you to worship the things. You say, I'm going to give. I'm going to worship God with my money. I'm going to, I'm going to sow the $5 and just worship God with my money. Instead of buying something, I'm going to sow it in the kingdom. I'm going to worship God. When you feel like it's dependent on, you know, for some of you, that may be a lot more than $5 over a few months. It's okay, you can laugh. When you find your identity and the temptation is, I need, you know, it's popularity. I need, I've got to, you know, the best thing to do in that moment is just what Jesus did. He recognized I told you I was going to stop preaching. Now I'm starting back up again. But he recognized in the moment who he was. He said, you'll not tempt the Lord your God. You just Can you accept yourself just for who you are in those moments? Well, what good could come from Nazareth? I, I am. I'm in him. That's all, that's all that's needed. I don't need to be somebody else. I don't need to be from another town. I don't need to have another reputation. I am who I am. That's who God made me. That's who I am. Just accept yourself for who you are. And then the performance. So if you find performance, you know, how do you respond to that? Obviously, stay secure in the love of God and, you know, respond, worship God, worship Him only. But 
recognize you are who, not who you, what you do. Just sit back, because the tendency is going to be for you to do something. And so how you face that is you just sit back and worship God. Instead of just doing something, just sit back and worship Him. Literally, go lay yourself down on the floor, sit in a chair, and worship. My identity comes from Him, not what I do. So you just got to get in His presence. Hallelujah. Why don't you take the hand of somebody next to you? Let's pray. If you're comfortable, if not, just slap the person next to you. No, I'm joking. Don't do that. Don't do it. Why don't you pray for the person on your right and your left? Why don't we do that this morning? Just pray for them. You don't know what they're facing, what's happening. Just pray for them. Pray for that person that's there next to you this morning. Say, well, I don't know what to pray. Just say, thank you, Jesus, for the person on my right and my left. You know what they have need of.